Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Colin Levy. And I'm Ulrich Brissell. This week, we are excited to welcome filmmaker and animator Andrew Chesworth to the show. Andrew, so good to have you. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Ulrich. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Andrew is a former Disney animator. Um, You worked there for what? Just shy of six years. Amazing. Uh, And this year, he co-directed One Small Step, which is an amazing animated short. It's online, is it not? It's online, and we released it last month. Go watch One Small Step, because we're going to be talking about it. Um, Andrew is also the head of development at Tyco Studios, which is a small animation studio here in L.A., yeah, we're in Burbank. Uh, it was founded by a group of me and several other former Disney artists. Uh, and then we also have uh, a team over in the city of Wuhan, China. So we're an international company. Oh, wow. Wow. Amazing. Uh, how, how big is the team uh, over in China? Over in China, it's kind of hovering around 15 people right now. Uh, and in L.A., we're at about seven people. Amazing. About. Yeah. <laughs> we'll uh, get into all this. Um, so Andrew and I have uh, known each other now for a decade, I just yeah. realized. Holy Ten moly. and a half years. Wow. Okay. So back when I was in college, um, I became aware of uh, some of the work that was being done by um, this small studio, design studio up in Minneapolis called Make. And um, I applied to be an intern and um, I drove out there and for an entire summer and Andrew Chesworth was there as sort of, uh, were you a lead animator at the time? It was a pretty small studio. There were about 15 of us, maybe less, when you came. Uh, I was a generalist, 2D CG animator, sometimes story artist and rigger, uh, and most often animation director right. for commercials, shorts, internal projects, uh, and other client work that came through. H- how old were you at that? In 2008, I was 23. Yeah. And I had been there for two years, uh, and by the time you came, I had probably directed seven or eight commercials. And and, w- and was this like a production company sort of thing, or like what was yes. the company's focus? Uh, Make is a design and animation and VFX generalist studio. I would say their core strength right now is uh, VFX and motion design. Uh, when I was there... Probably just the team that was there at the time, the core strength was probably character animation uh, with kind of a design and VFX bent to it. Wow. And what kind of stuff did you guys work on? Just like give a few examples of the things that you directed or the kinds of projects you worked on there. Uh, I kind of focused more on stylized uh, CG and 2D animation, occasionally stop motion. Uh, The first commercial I directed was actually a public service announcement called Spilled Oil, and it was a 2D animated piece that was about the public awareness of the harmful effects of oil spills. Uh, And this was actually three years before that big BP oil spill in the Gulf. So it actually went viral, like, again, three years after we made it. Uh, And then the second piece I directed was a kind of 2.5D, I guess you could say like a paper doll style Maya animation about this kind of wacky Wild West world. Uh, and it was actually a sponsor intro for AICP, which is the so- the Association of oh, Independent yeah. Commercial Producers. Oh, and yeah. They sort, they sort of do like a uh, 
film festival intro with all the sponsors who put on the event. So kind of like, wow. you know, some of those Annecy intros you see that are done by Gobelin students where they have a concept, really great, uh, interesting design, but then they use it to kind of intro a film festival. Ah, it's like yes. a good platform for something you want to play around with. Wow. Wasn't there a, yeah. like a, a McDonald's or, or Burger King? Yeah, or yeah. I directed some 2D, 2D with motion graphics uh, uh, Burger King. Uh, Burger King Kids Play, I think, was that campaign. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and then we had, uh, yeah, we had some McDonald's pieces. Uh, our, one of our big clients was Target. Um, on, I didn't direct the Target ones. I was more of an animation supervisor on those. Wow. Uh, Best Buy I directed an in-store ad for that was kind of in the style of like Cowboy Bebop or the Beatles rock band Dude, game. Dude, that's awesome. The, the art director there wanted specifically that vibe, so I designed the characters and I directed the animation for that. We did it in about a month. It was like 20, 30 seconds of content. Wow. And um, you're 23 when all this is happening? Uh, I was 24 when I did the Best Buy in-store ad. That was 2009. Wow. But That's it was incredible, 20... man. Oh, oh, thank you. It was a, it was right place at the right time because Danny, the um, creative director there and the owner of the company who hired me and hired Colin, he graduated three years ahead of me at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, which was right down the street from downtown Minneapolis where the studio was. So I interned there while I was still in school. Uh, Danny graduated when I was a freshman, and we were in the animation club, and uh, that's how I got to know Danny, and we did a little group project together uh, through the club, and he he and I really hit it off, and he kind of just had a space waiting for me when an internship became available, so it was a very natural progression going from uh, MCAD in Minneapolis to MAKE in Minneapolis. Wow. I remember that summer um, being in awe of Andrew and his work and just like leaning over his shoulder at, at his, uh, you know, Cintiq, because, uh, you know, his level of draftsmanship is off the charts in terms of just like, you know, the character designs and the animation he was doing was just mind blowing. We also went to see Wally together. I don't know if you remember. We did go to see Wally. Yeah. Summer of 08. I saw that movie many times that summer because I <laughs> enjoyed seeing it with you so much. I was really inspired by it. Uh, I want to actually talk a little bit about Colin and how he came to make. You actually had a connection to one of makes then and still current rock stars, Tyson. Right. Tyson Ibell. Yeah. Uh, and I think you and Tyson were sort of CG society pen pals. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, but again, it was another, it was more of a situation like you and me where I was uh, in awe of his work. And like that was, he was one of the reasons I sought Make Out because I was a fan of Tyson's work. Yeah. He'd been posting on uh, all this amazing stuff. And it wasn't just a render, like a lot of, you know, um, CG generalists can do, you know, uh, can put together an image that's compelling, but he was making films. He was he was a, a, a filmmaker, a one man band, one man band, uh, entirely you know CG animation stuff. And um, I I heard that he was working at Make. I applied to work at Make. I drove the f- three or four days from where I was going to school in Savannah, Georgia, mm-hmm. and I found out he was working remotely. Wow. <laughs> from oh. Canada. Oh, so that's funny. I actually didn't get a chance to like meet that's him there. That's right. Oh, because when I <laughs> interned there, he was physically there. Right. And then by the time I graduated, he was already working remotely. Right. Yeah, and he's, wow. um, yeah, he's been with the company since 2005. I, I think, 
I think it's appropriate for Colin and I to talk about Tyson a little bit because he's a really inspiring guy, very humble, kind of well-known in the CG society and VFX industries, but in the animation industry, he's kind of like an urban legend because not a lot of people have met him in person. And if you do, he's like the nicest guy. He looks like Hmm. a lumberjack, you know, very big. (laughs) I mean, he looks like Captain America, but he's Canadian, so he's like (laughs) Captain Canada. But the thing that's kind of incredible about his work, I mean, to, so, you know, to, to be a good filmmaker in live action, anytime you're making a, a movie, there's like all sorts of things you've got to get absolutely right. You know, from the story to the performances to the lighting and to you have to understand how a movie is put together. And there's so many elements. But if you're making an animated short film, for example, the, the level of layers uh, of understanding that must you must have to be able to execute that, especially as a one-man band, because then you're getting into modeling, shading, rigging, texturing, lighting in the computer, wow. yeah. uh, simulation. Right. Uh, it, it's like from a, the most technical to the greatest like conceptual level, you've got to have a masterful handling of all of these elements, and that was Tyson. And yeah. that's what makes him such a unique force why we're why why we're uh fanboys right now (laughs) i know well i mean i think it's it's appropriate to talk about him because he inspired both of us and we both worked with him in different ways like colin says the gifts that he had i mean i would look at his work and say how did you do that amazing kind of ambient handheld camera effect and he'd be like oh i wrote a script for that that it makes the curve Hmm. kind of fluctuate at a certain rate at a certain amplitude and I'm like, and that's like on top of the animation you're doing. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got like the camera animation. And then I have this other layer that adds just like noise to it. And that blew my mind that you could even <laughs> do that. And I would try doing it myself in Maya because I knew Maya. He knew 3D Studio Max. And I would have results that were much less satisfying than what Tyson was getting. <laughs> so well, it's, uh, it's, we'll um, have to put his like web page and work on, on in yeah, the show notes so people can right. see see what he's done and see his stuff. I mean, it's interesting to think about Tyson um, because uh, I guess in relation to his career path and and also ours, there's actually kind of a, uh, a pattern that I've recognized um, while I was sort of like in high school looking up to uh, CG artists and, and like um, fan film filmmakers and stuff who get sort of absorbed by big studios and then you never hear them again. Right. A lot of people who who get to Pixar, that's their end game. And then you, they never post anything else on, online um, and they stop doing their own filmmaking. Um, and kind of what's exciting now that there's, there's a, a new sort of wave of filmmakers coming out of, on the other end yeah. of these studios who are out there making their own shorts again. I put you in this category. Um, it's so interesting that Tyson is, I would say, more of a, an artist who follows his own whims. Like, he, he spent, you know, years on this mobile game, you know, mm-hmm. completely different than than the the short filmmaking he was doing. And now he's like, I'm just following him on Instagram, doing all this amazing, like, Houdini-esque, it's amazing, like, yeah. particulate, like, crazy... T-flow. Yeah, he's built his own system for, what do you call this? 
it's it's like a like procedural particle simulations right that can perform different patterns and different <laughs> behaviors and he'll just run it to like what if a man who was walking dissolved into a bunch of marbles it's like that kind of thing wow. <laughs> yeah you guys lost me on all of the technical talk until you <laughs> man just turns into, man marbles. into marbles and i was like okay that's a yeah, good way yeah, of yeah. describing it i can i can but, conceptualize that oh i had one more observation to make about tyson's <laughs> autonomy canadian healthcare. You can just work from home and not fear for your future. Ah, that I is... think uh, I think if we solve uh, the single payer issue here in America, then we'll have a lot more stay at home independent artists. A lot more Tysons out there. A lot more Tysons yeah. out there, fearlessly creating things, not afraid for their mortality. Yeah. Well, uh, to sort of connect it to the to the um, sort of career trajectory thing, I remember getting back to the Wally thing yeah. on the drive back from seeing that movie. I remember talking about. Oh, how cool would it be to work at Pixar? Or how cool would it be to work at Disney? And I feel like you and your um, sort of orientation, you seem like a better Disney fit. You, you were a fan of the nine, the, the, you know. The nine old men. The, ni- the legendary nine old men, these Disney animators. Um, and, you know, the whole just tradition of, of uh, traditional animation. And I've always been a, a fan of Pixar. And at the time, I think, um, you know, as much as we loved working at Make, it definitely seemed like oh, one day, one day that would be cool. And I think it was like four or five years later, uh, we were each, I was at Pixar, you were at Disney. And <laughs> yeah. it was kind of amazing to, to kind of in parallel be on these um you, you started know, at Pixar in layout a month before Disney hired me. That's crazy. Wow. It was like you started at Pixar in September and then Disney called me. <laughs> At the end of September. Wow. So really quickly, uh, for those of us who don't know, can Andrew, can you talk to, to us about the nine old men? Like, what is this? There's like nine animators for a certain period of time at, at Disney. Like, what's this thing? Yeah. So the nine old men were actually the second generation of Disney animators. If you begin from like the Steamboat Willie black and white era. In that time, there were a few animators named Ham Lusk, Norm Ferguson, um, Freddie Moore, and they were not the nine old men. They were kind of there when Disney started or right after he started during the 1930s. Then in the late 1930s, when they were staffing up for Snow White and doing a lot of the really successful silly symphonies like Three Little Pigs, they attracted a lot of really incredible draftsmen from all over the country who were inspired. Some of them actually buy the short, the Three Little Pigs, that kind of the 1930s equivalent of going viral. It was like a huge yeah. short film in the zeitgeist in the United States. Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf was like a really popular single at the time. Milt Call was an animator who was working as a um, poster designer in San Francisco. He was like 25 at the time doing these impeccable posters. His draftsmanship was there at a young age. He saw Three Little Pigs, saw the opportunity, knew Disney was making a feature, and he applied. And there were others like Frank and Ollie, uh, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, who kind of had a similar path. Uh, And when they all got there, they learned really quickly under the original animators that Disney had hired, who had been there for about 10 years. And the nine old men... That name came later. You know, they, they kind of cut their teeth right. on Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia. And there was a very specific group of nine men that Walt became very um, fond of their work. And he kind of jokingly called them the nine old men, which was what Franklin Delano Roosevelt called his Supreme Court 
at the time, his oh, nine funny. old men. So, <laughs> so it was just kind of an off-the-cuff joke that Walt made comparing it to, you know, the government uh, that, that lingered and became part of animation lore and history. So what was the last movie that the nine old men worked on? The Rescuers in 1977. Ooh, wow. The Rescuers. I love The Rescuers. The Rescuers was... Uh, so Milk Call started on Snow White animating animals and the prince kind of cl- climbed really fast and became a character lead on Pinocchio, which was the second movie. So he had a skyrocket career going from doing background characters and the prince to the main character in the second film. So he was a force of nature. He was there from... 1936, 37 or so, all the way to 1977 with The Rescuers. So he had a 40-year career. And a lot of people say the work he did on The Rescuers with Madame Medusa was some of his finest work. So he retired kind of at the pinnacle of his ability, which is remarkable for somebody who was pushing 70 at the time. Wow. Incredible. Well, well, there's probably a lot more to learn about those guys, but that's that's fascinating. I didn't know that there was these, you know, nine people who were such a defining part of the Disney animated history. You know, there's been a few books written about him. John Canemaker wrote a great book uh, around the turn of the millennium, and then Andreas Deja recently did another one, kind of exploring different aspects of their lives. There's another series of books coming out. Uh, sponsored by Pete Doctor, the Pixar director of uh, Up and Inside Out. Um, And I think it's like the nine other men. And it's like other animators who he considered and many consider to be at the same level, but didn't make it into the the club, so to speak, as Uh, defined by history. So, yeah, there's there's different opinions in animation about what artists, you know, have been – justly celebrated i mean the nine old men were really some of the finest in history but there were so many hundreds of disney artists there at the time and many of them did work that's very memorable but not celebrated because they don't have a catchy (laughs) tagline or name to go with their identity what one day there will be the nine old women i think so yeah i think so (laughs) well there was one who animated on bambi and she did uh all the dogs that are you know, running on behalf of the hunter oh. after the deer. And she wasn't at the studio for a very long time, I think, but her work was very, and I, I really honestly wish I could remember her name right now. But uh, yeah, a lot of people considered her to be one of the best draftsmen at the studio. Wow. It was a very sexist for a time, for a long time. It was, it was you know, yes. the women were in the ink and paint department. They were not animators. Yes. Uh, and, and the animators would frequently marry them. Huh. It was a very kind of... right. Uh, there was almost like a spousal distinction between the departments in a lot of ways. Wow. Literally yeah, and uh, metaphorically. A- Andrew is definitely the right guy to talk about, uh, you know, some of this uh, uh, Disney animation history. Definitely oh, yeah. educated me during our time uh, in Minneapolis. I-, I do want to say, I mean, Colin says, uh, maybe rightfully so, I was sort of the Disney guy. He was the Pixar guy. But I will say uh, it was probably The Incredibles that made me really sink my teeth into the career that took me to make and eventually Disney. Mm. I saw that film during my second year of school. I was doing some 2D animation freelance for one of my college professors who was sort of a freelance animator and he would do commercials. Uh, Tom Schroeder was his name. He taught my intro to animation class. I said, hey, Tom, uh, is there any work 
that you can think of that I could help with for an animator, like in betweening. And he's like, actually, I'm working on a commercial right now. Do you want to work for me? And I said, sure. <laughs> and that was my very first time getting paid to animate. Wow. And the last time I ever had a job that wasn't animating, uh, like huh. it was, the, it was like after that, there was no looking back. I should say you got hooked. I got That's hooked. Awesome. Then I was like, "Oh man, I can get paid to do this. This is great." It wasn't a ton of money, but it, it felt good to get paid doing what I always wanted to do. And that that particular freelance job was very hectic and busy, and it overlapped with the Thanksgiving season. Uh, and so I didn't oh, make wow. it home to see my parents in time because that commercial got really busy. And Tom felt really bad uh, that I stayed in Minneapolis to help him finish the job. So he took me out, uh, and we went to go see The Incredibles and get dinner. And watching The Incredibles with my animation professor and being so inspired by it and seeing him get inspired by it, too. Like, he was genuinely impressed at what a great movie it was. And hmm. even for him to be impressed made an impression on me. Hmm. Well, and, The Incredibles, that's a special movie. It's a know, very like, special movie. Like the first Toy Story, you know, and I mean, it's up up there for me. And totally. I, I, like that's one of those movies you can watch over and over, oh and, my over God. and over again. It's and so it's good. Like, it's always great. <laughs> yeah, Toy Story still... It's funny, just the, the tools they had at the time and what an uphill struggle it was for them to get the results on the screen that they got. But yet, the pacing, the rhythm, the staging, just the, the, the energy that that film has and the specificity of character. I'm just yeah. swept up in it every time I watch it. The storytelling is almost... Per I wouldn't even say almost. The storytelling is perfect in Toy Story. It is. like it, It's absolutely perfect. Like You yeah. can watch that movie and it's like every that's like that's how it's done that's how you make a good movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, just exactly. do toy do a movie like do story, toy, toy story, story. Do toy and story. i mean and it's got yeah. some of randy newman's finest work in it and i'm not even talking about the songs as great as they are but even just the score is amazing in that yeah. movie yeah. even just the little playful cues when sid's got the two toys in his hand he's like time to go home and play and then the camera <laughs> right. zooms in on the skull <laughs> yeah. and the sinister yeah. music cue it, totally. it's just it's it's kind of over the top in some ways, but it's yeah. wonderful. How it's brilliant. It, it's just so brilliant. Yeah. Oh, man. I saw that at the Castro Theater a few years ago, um, you know, on a rescreening, and uh -huh. I had already seen it, like, you know, whatever, 20 times, sure. but seeing it there in the theater again when I was older and hadn't seen it in a few years, I was just like, this is this is perfect. Yeah. There's nothing better than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> man, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I love Toy Story. Do you know, so, tech detail, that they rendered that at, like, uh, uh, 720 by 1280. No way. That was like really? the output resolution in those days, and they blew it up to film. And uh, wow. you just do not care. I mean, it's so low res by today's standards, but there's there's still like a, sh a fidelity to it. I mean, 1280 by 720 is a little smaller than Blu-ray, which is just shy of 2K, isn't it? Right, right. right. It's, it's like the like, lower HD yeah. flavor. 1920, 1080 Blu-ray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think everyone who's who's an animation nerd or you know a, an aspiring animator is is dying to know. How do you go from make to Disney? Like, Great how does question. that transformation happen? Great question. Well, there was a little bit of a transitional period. Uh, I had been at make from 2006, if you include my internship, to the end of 2011, when I had wrapped up, I don't know, probably something like my 30th project there. And I knew at the time that it was on my bucket list to work at either Disney or Pixar. One of the two, I just had to do it. That itch was not going away. And I was only doing 
really qualifying character animation work for a reel I would submit to that studio every couple of months, not often enough to really get a substantive reel together that they would take note of. And so uh, I made the difficult decision to leave my full-time job there at the end of 2010 going into 2011. And I kept my relationship with the company going, but uh, it was on a freelance basis. And then during the day, I was doing animation tests of my own, as well as animating on a 2D short film uh, called The Brave Locomotive that I had come up with a couple years earlier that I had been working on intermittently. But it was very much a film that was designed to showcase uh, any qualifying aspects I might have for a studio like Disney. The, the, The tone, the style of animation, the flavor of it, the spirit of it. And then in the meantime, if I needed a break from my short film, I would do another character animation test for my my reel. So there was some variety. And then to pay the bills, I was teaching a storyboarding class and an animation class at uh, MCAD where I went to school. And that was paying my rent for essentially, you know, two nights of work per week. And then if I felt, you know, the itch to get out of the apartment, I would freelance at make either doing character design or um, some production work. So that was the better part of 2011 for me was just being freelance and trying to groom myself for a job at Disney. And I applied in March of 2011, actually only a couple months after I left the job at Make. Uh, And then they called me out of the blue in September, six months later, without me applying in the interim. So it was just a very fortuitous Had you applied prior to that time? I did. I applied three times. Me too. Once in 2007, when I first graduated, I applied to both Disney and Pixar. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear back from either of them. I applied in 2009 just to Disney for the 2D animation uh, specifically because I knew they were ramping up for The Princess and the Frog. Uh, and even though I applied around the time that they would have been wrapping up on Frog, uh, I expected that they were going to do Winnie the Pooh and at the time the Snow Queen, which became Frozen, and thought, well, if they're ah. bringing 2D back, I want to be a part of it. And so I applied. Uh, I didn't hear back. That was like strike two, right? Didn't get in. So did they, they never rejected you? They just didn't respond, really? Didn't respond, although I did have a personal connection at the studio. A friend I went to school with in Minnesota uh, was working there as a modeler. He had worked there during the Bolt Tangled era, uh, and then he went to a ah. game studio, and then he came back for Wreck-It Ralph as an environment modeler. Uh, and he worked on Paper Man as well. And he vouched for me. He talked to the recruiter and said, hey, my friend Andrew applied. Maybe you could take a look at his stuff. And it was basically just a little poke to get my application in front of some eyeballs again. And when they took a second look at it, they were like, oh, yeah, all right. And then they kind of considered me. And so it was almost like just reminding somebody to consider me made all the difference. I mean, the work had to be at a level that they wouldn't regret the decision, but... You're, you're among so many equally qualified people that sometimes it's just somebody making a recommendation that makes the difference. Hmm. So I've felt very lucky, and I definitely bought him many drinks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I'm looking at your website right now, and I'm looking at some of your animation tests and things. Um, what were some of the ones that were on your reel that got you the Disney job? Was it like the Janine's Walk or this... One with the woman and the baby, was it that stuff? Or what what, what were you showing people? The one that uh, got me into Disney had Palm Springs, the film noir piece, and Invisible to You, the um, 
yeah, the documentary uh, uh, sequence. And it uh, also had, uh, if you scroll down there, Colin, mm-hmm. I'm like forgetting my own stuff. Uh, it had the the monkey on the uh, the live action actor. There's like sort of a Roger Rabbit style commercial right, we did. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it yeah. Had, it had some of that too. The uh, monkey yeah, so, looks like the gorilla from Who Framed Roger Rabbit a little bit. You know? <laughs> well, the goal of that piece was to kind of capture the spirit of, yeah, the Roger Rabbit sensibility. For sure, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, it it was. Um, I talked a little bit to Clay Cadis, who directed the animated Angry Birds movie, and he was an animation supervisor on Tangled. And he recently finished the uh, Kurt Russell Santa Claus movie that's coming out on Netflix. Uh, oh uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah yeah. I saw the trailer. Yeah, so he directed that recently. So that oh, was his wow. first first foray into live action. But I had lunch with him. Not long after I started at Disney, and he said the piece on my reel that tipped the scale in his mind was the the Palm Springs piece, the film noir. This is incredible. I just watched a few seconds of it. It's amazing. Um, I, I'm just really curious now. I want to get to more of like a nuts and bolts question. For sure. Uh, this piece, let's use the Palm Springs piece as an example. Uh, how many people work on this? Is it just you, or do you have a team of people helping you? Like, how, like break down how you even start putting something like this together. So the Palm Springs piece, uh, I developed it, designed it, and directed it, and I was the key animator on it. And I know that sounds like a lot, but it's mostly because it was a short piece, and we were doing it in between higher-paying commercial projects. This was more of an exposure piece for the company, doing the uh, the sponsor intro for the Palm Springs International Short Fest in Southern California. And they basically let us do whatever we want. And I told Danny, oh, wouldn't it be fun to do like a 2D film noir thing? Like that's just straight up kind of Chinatown meets uh, the Maltese Falcon. And he'd be like, yeah, cool. Let's let's design something for that. And so I did these characters and I came up with this idea that the MacGuffin would be the film reel that is like basically the content of the film festival and the plot, like many film noirs and whodunits is a bit of a, just a nonsense plot to tie set pieces together. But, uh, you know, you've got your reversal and your, your dramatic reveal and your, uh, the scene at the beginning where she comes in and there's a case and he kind of reluctantly takes it. Then there's a car chase. It's got all the tent poles that you wanted to see in that genre piece. But, um, I, I wrote the script it's just like a two-page description of the action with the dialogue in about a day and a half, just kind of hashing it out. I storyboarded it in about uh, four days, cut together an edit in a couple days. We brought in the actors. Each actor we had for about two hours, got all the lines. Then I cut it back together into the animatic. And then I started doing uh, rough layouts, which are just kind of like sketchy drawings for the backgrounds. Uh, and rough uh, key placement of the characters, which is kind of like in live action when you block with a stand-in just to get the uh, the framing right and the the shot design right. And then once I had a blocking layout pass for the whole short, uh, I was able to invite on other, other animators to draw over my blocking and, and flesh out the scenes more fully. But uh, my so hand... Is it like a, is it like a storyboard where it's just like the main frame for each like you know five seconds of film or like like how detailed and how intricate are these boards that you're making i guess i i'm a dumb d- just think about uh, no, 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 me no. as a as a dummy like i don't know anything about how this process works i just know that you know animation is frame by frame but you're obviously not doing that in the storyboard stage you're just doing like how many frames 
to be in between are are these people are the animators filling in for you is it like you're doing one every 24 frames or is it less than that more than that less than that oh faster actions like uh, like the car chase for example is mostly a new image every 24 frames the cars are cgi and then certain effects uh, like the the tommy gun um muzzle flashes are hand animated uh, and then, like, when you cut to the detective inside the car, he's like a held image. Then he turns around and it's on what they call twos, where it's like 12 frames a second. There's a new yeah. drawing every other frame. Yeah. Um, so if you've got a more contained action, you'll do fewer drawings to describe the action. And it tends to be a little easier on the eyes, too. You know, if if the character's not moving very much, but you in between it every frame, it tends to look a little busy, a little static, unless it's... Pardon me, unless it's really well tied down. Wow. But, uh, yeah, and this style had a rougher pencil edge look to it as well. So on ones, it could f- feel a little active unless the characters were moving a lot. So, like, when the police commissioner busts through the door at the end with the other cops, that's on ones for the most part because it's such a broad, fast action. Which means a frame, a, a drawing every frame. A drawing every frame is on, is on ones, as they say. But to make a distinction between um, the storyboard and sort of extremes, which would yeah. be keyframes, right? Um, you know, a storyboard. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know what this project uh, required. But it's like you do the bare minimum to communicate what happens, you know, on a story right. level. Um, but of course, you want to sell it, you know, for the projects that I've seen and also done my own in animation. Um, it, it can be as little as one drawing per shot. And then yeah. if there's important blocking, you kind of do, um, you know, a handful of drawings as necessary. Story. I was teaching my storyboarding class not long after I finished this um, short film. And I remember telling my students, and I still use this in my animation classes that I teach as well. When you're telling the story of a shot, whether it's one shot for live action and you're storyboarding it, or a scene for animation and you're blocking it out... If you only had one image to tell the whole story of your shot, like a far side panel or a graphic novel page, like splash page, what would that image be? It's like that reductive question of what's what's the one thing you absolutely can't do without visually to tell the story of this shot? You know, if it's a the very first scene of Palm Springs where he's pouring the drink at his desk, sets it down and he looks up as if he's anticipating somebody coming into the room. Like, what's the one image that you can't really do without? Well, you probably want to see him pouring the drink and smoking, right? Because he's got issues. But you also probably want to have him look up to see that there's somebody coming. So the first panel could be he's pouring the drink, but his eyes are looking up. That's the one image that tells that whole story. And because it's moving, you can break it up and he pours the drink, sets it down, you know, takes it, looks up, sees that somebody's coming. Uh, but that that's really helpful for me, not just in animation, but um, the few times I have done live action for commercials or short films, um, I, I think of it the exact same way. Just what's the one thing the shot needs that it can't do without? Because every shot, every cut you make is progressing the story somehow. So hopefully right. there's that baseline value add each time. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I have another question about this piece. Is this all hand-drawn um, animation, or how much of, is it, is of, it, of it is done in computers? How much of it is hand-drawn, if any? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Of course, yeah. So 
the computer elements, it was all drawn in Photoshop, so it was all digitally drawn on a, on a tablet. Uh, all the compositing was done in After Effects because there's a lot of sliding card elements and overlapping layers. Then the actual redraws of the, the 2D characters um, was, was Photoshop. Uh, and then the cars and the, let's see, the movie projector, there might be one or two other hard surface objects in the film. Uh, those are done in Maya, rendered with outlines to match the style of the, uh, the human characters. Wow. So it was kind of like, if you've seen the movie 101 Dalmatians, you know how Cruella DeVille's car looks really three-dimensional? Yeah. That was actually uh, like a stop-motion toy model of a car that was painted white, and then with like Sharpie and ink, they would draw outlines along the edges of the cardboard model, and then photograph it against white, Xerox it onto a plastic cell, and then paint underneath it the same way they did with the drawings of, you know, Pongo and Roger <laughs> wow. and the other... I had no idea. That's incredible. That's incredible. So 100, 101, <laughs> next time you watch 101 wow. Dalmatians, anytime you see Cruella DeVille's car driving, that's actually a physical model photographed against white and then printed onto a cell. And, and animated it, in stop motion, essentially. Basically stop motion, yeah. I mean, I know some of it, they would like pull it along with a string. Like if you see the scene in Dalmatians where Cruella's car goes over the bridge into the ditch... And then she, you know, shifts the gear and she floors it and the car c climbs up through the snow and there's snow pouring over the car. That's actually the model car with a string pulling it through a set. Huh. And then there's sand kind of dripping over the car to, <laughs> to simulate snow. And then I think they played it at a faster speed to give it the drama and the animation timing. And then they probably had to erase out elements of the footage so that it would sit nicely with the drawn background. But to draw, to try to draw uh, a, a, a hard surface object like a car with foreshortening and perspective, doing the right thing um, with a camera move or without, it's yeah. like that is an insane task. You're using the right tool for the job. Yeah, with this, with the Palm Springs project. Yeah, and we literally just looked at Dalmatians as a starting point and said, well, yeah, how did they do it? And then how would you do that now? Because, I mean, even when Cruella's car first pulls up to Roger and Anita's house in 101 Dalmatians, it stops and the car idles. <laughs> you can see the, the frame of the car shaking as the engine idles. And they had actually put in like a little... I think it was an electric motor that made the car vibrates made yeah. the, made the model car tremble. This like white, black and white cardboard <laughs> wow. model of a car with an electric motor inside it, making it tremble. And they're filming it on film, taking that footage, putting it on cells. It's wow. insane, amazing. Wow. Uh, but there's an animator who worked on the film named Floyd Norman, who's in his seventies now, I think, and he was real young when he worked on it in 1961, 62, and he said. I mean, he's, he worked at Pixar as a story artist, but he also worked at Disney on those old films like 101 Dalmatians. So he has the context for what they were doing back then and how it relates to computer animation. He's like, yeah, they were basically doing computer animation before there were computer animated tools. Wow. So then, um, like, the way that you you drew um, in Photoshop using a tablet for for the Palm, String, Palm Springs piece, uh -huh. uh, is, is that how animation is done at Disney? Is it the same thing, or is it done differently there, a different process? Like On The Princess and the Frog, it was a, which was their most recent high-profile 2D animated film, 
they used, uh, I think, Toon Boom Harmony, which is another digital animation tool, but really the same concept where you're drawing on a Cintiq and um, simulating the look of something that's drawn on paper. But in Princess and the Frog, they did a lot of it on paper and then certain things on the tablet, like effects and background characters and kind of more limited... Um, aspects of the film because the core team was still experienced in doing it on paper. Uh, but then as time went on, I think Winnie the Pooh, they did a little bit more on the tablets. Um, like the honey sequence in the Winnie the Pooh movie was mostly done digitally, I think. Well, the, well talk about when you got to Disney um, mm-hmm. and you're working on, you said Wreck-It Ralph was your first movie that you worked it on? It was, yeah, yeah. It was my first so, movie there. So what was your job on Wreck-It Ralph as like a bright new young guy in Disney, like so excited to be there, like thrilled out of your mind? <laughs> uh, I was, yeah, that's accurate. I, uh, I, I began uh, in what they call the talent development program, and I was one of... I believe six animators who were hired in that group. And this was maybe about nine months after Tangled had come out. So we were trained by the crew that was fresh off of Tangled. And it was this great new generation of really talented Disney animators training us, uh, us newbies, how to kind of uh, uh, adapt to the style and the culture of the studio. And so I did these tests with these little elf characters from a short called Prep and Landing that Disney had did. Uh, for for ABC, uh, and we did like walk cycles, dialogue tests, mechanic exercises, and then I did a test of uh, Flynn Rider using the rig from Tangled, kind of running through a palace with arrows firing at him, and he hides behind a table as like an axe flies at him and cuts into the table, and it was just do an action test in the style of Tangled, uh, and then after we sort of graduated from that program, we moved on to doing crowds on Wreck-It Ralph. And so the characters you see in the, the game central station with all the video game cameos walking around, it's kind of like the union station scene. I had done, um, like characters sitting on benches, walk cycles. I did, uh, like the, like a monkey character who kind of looks like a donkey Kong character, Uh, like a run cycle of him walking around. Uh, and then let's see what else we did. And then, and this is all stuff where you're drawing like on a tablet using their, their proprietary software or is it at Photoshop or like, how are you guys doing it? So the Wreck-It Ralph was done in Maya with the assistance of proprietary tools written by Disney to kind of subsidize Maya. So it'd be like, it makes sense to make a distinction between 2d animation films and 3d animated films which are you know basically completely different approaches mm-hmm. to 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 make animated content and have you know kind of associated separate pipelines very much so yeah i mean the way pixar and disney and sony and dreamworks and blue sky make their cg animated films is really an identical pipeline to a visual effects studio that does realistic effects for live action like the dinosaurs in jurassic park I mean, really, that same pipeline could be used on a on like a Toy Story. Oh, it's wow. the same the same tools, the same methodology, just applied for a different aesthetic. So yeah, Wreck It Ralph is you're trying to make the poses feel caricatured and 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 iconic, like the classic hand drawn Disney work, but you're still using the tools of the computer to. Um, to achieve the effect and just to you know kind of uh uh dig down a little deeper in this it's like 
with with it, something that's 2D, for the most part, you're starting uh, every frame is sort of a, a blank page. Yeah. You are drawing the character again and again and again and animating over time using nothing but your understanding of the human form or whatever, the, the form of your characters and, uh, and the principles of animation. Whereas in 3D, um, you have a whole bunch of modern tools that allows an animator to essentially manipulate a, a puppet, a digital puppet. So, you know, Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph exists um, in sort of a T-pose maybe by default um, when you open up a shot. Um, I'm simplifying the layout process, which is uh, what I did at at, uh, at Pixar. But uh, but you guys use the same exact tools that the animators do, right? Identical, right? And and the animator uh, doesn't have to, uh, you know, on a Cintiq or whatever, draw, um, you know, frame by frame. But they're they're um, taking this puppet, manipulating it, putting it in a pose, setting keyframes, and defining its its motion and performance over time the at the end of the day it's 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 similar in so many ways um it's imbuing life into into characters um but the way of getting there in 3d is is uh quite a bit different just because of the the tools that are being used it's sort of like um stop motion like the way Ray Harryhausen did it or like the Nightmare Before Christmas, but on the computer and you don't have to do every frame one at a time. You can do a frame on frame one or a pose on frame one and then another pose on frame 24. And if you could just let the computer blend between those 100% and it would just float from one pose to the other because the computer knows the points of articulation on every part of the puppet and will just... Yeah, it's like um, it's the same logic as like if you're working in Premiere and fading to black and you're like, oh, I want to have the fade to black last for two more seconds. It's the same exact logic as that. But instead of an image fading to black, it's a character moving from one pose to the other because it's just data. But are you getting like for most of the work that you do, is it really like frame by frame with the keyframes or are there actually some where you can actually let the computer you know, fill in the blanks, or does it just depend? I would say on average, uh, you're you're trying to create a very believable performance. It's going to be on a large screen in front of a very discerning audience. So at a certain level, you're accountable for every frame. <laughs> so you you're definitely right. check every frame. Even if you don't touch every part of the character on every frame, you're at least manipulating the data of the ease in, ease outs, is this like a linear uh, interpolation or like a soft interpolation? Uh, do I need an extra key in here so I have a fast in? Right, and, interesting. And then, so, it, yeah, if, it's like if you're manipulating a fade or a transition on live-action footage in Premiere or Final Cut, you're kind of massaging the interpolation using data points, and it's the See, same with, with this. But yeah. you're But you have to check every frame to make sure that uh, it holds up. So if the audience pauses the film, there's not a glaring mistake. <laughs> yeah, it, it also just yeah, it has to keep you invested. It has to feel you watch it in real time. There's nothing distracting about it. It's on point. Uh, I would say yeah. most of the shots I do, somewhere on the character, there's probably a key on every frame. 
you know, not every part of the character has a key on every frame, but somewhere in the shot, there's probably a key on every frame by the time I'm done. Because right. I'm very obsessive about, you know, making sure things aren't all moving at the same time in a mechanical way, breaking up the action, having offset and fluidity and the physicality. And just by virtue of that, you're kind of moving keyframes around on your timeline, and eventually it starts to become just little keyframe hashtags wall to wall on your timeline. Because these these puppets, these rigs, um, are are have so many controls. So every um, every digit, you know, uh, of of a hand, you've got five fingers, but probably um, at least thirty. Yeah. Um, controls wow. just for fingers, right? And you can, wow. you can, probably you can, way more than that because you can, like, push a finger against a, a surface and make yeah. it squash and stretch. Facial controls are incredibly complex. The level of granularity and control and, like, detail is absolutely mind blowing. The number of, you know, controls to, to make a shot sing, you know? Yeah. And, and probably there's no place on earth with more attention to detail put on character animation than Disney Animation Studios. So, you know, you could compare that to maybe something, you know, Jimmy Neutron. There was, you know, for, for TV animation, that hell, they re- those animators had to get through so much, you know, footage per week that, um, you know, they relied a lot more heavily on the computer sort of interpolating between <laughs> right. key poses. You'll see more of the character move together like every part of the character goes from this pose to that pose because they don't have time to to kind of break it up and and really massage it not on a tv schedule yeah my uh my nephew watches these 3d animated like youtube shows you know oh, wow. and uh, i was watching those things and it's so funny because you can tell that like they have these these uh, characters that they get built and then they'll even go to the po- point of combining different parts of the characters together to make new characters and so oh, wow. you can tell they're just reusing all these pieces like, <laughs> as many times as they can within a show right. you know and and then obviously the animation is super basic and super you know blocky and, and clunky and it's like oh yeah but like most of that is done automatically like they just you know program it pretty briefly and then they just let it go pretty and scary. that's how they can why do you let your you know, kid watch such crap is my I know. question. So I, fo- I forced my nephew to watch the old Disney animation uh, when he comes over. Go. So whenever he comes over here, he's always watching Donald Duck and Chip and Dale and, <laughs> and Mickey and Mouse. But, you know, his mom and his dad, my my brother, like, you know, they feel like that stuff's a little too violent, you know? And I'm like, ah, it's not violent. It's- Even the old, you know, it's funny you say that. I mean, when I think of the violent stuff from the old days, I think of Tom and Jerry and, and some of the Looney Tunes cartoons. But... I- Surprisingly, some of those Donald Duck cartoons from yeah. that era are vicious. Yeah, him like, and his whoa. nephews, they they get into it pretty hardcore. Yeah, it's you know? it's intense. And then the nephews like fake his death and like make him think that he had died. Oh my gosh. You know? yeah. And then he like goes to ha- We were watching that with my nephew like a few weeks ago and me and my brother are looking at each other like I was like, "Man, that's pretty rough." And he's like, "Yeah, well, he's four, he's 5, almost 5. He can handle it." I was These like, are- "Yeah." Those those cartoons were made for uh, rough and tumble country folk, I think, uh, who yeah. were very uh, where, where psychological torment was just a day on the farm. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, this is this is fascinating. So so then, I mean, 
I, we're, we're already at an hour, so we should probably speed things up a little bit. Sure. But, but I want to hear a little bit about your transition through Wreck-It Ralph. So you you were doing these background animations um, on that film. And is that all that you were able to do on that project? Or do they let you go and do some more things? Oh, I, I actually did more footage, like shot footage on Wreck-It Ralph than any subsequent movie I worked on. Uh, because... Some of that work is filling gaps, like, hey, do these three shots here, five shots there, six shots here. And then I also, on top of it, was given uh, a lot of great acting shots. I got to do a lot of footage of King Candy, the the wacky king of Sugar Rush, when he's introducing the race and we first meet all the the Sugar Rush racers and and King Candy himself. It's a great sequence. Oh, I I love... uh, I love that character. He was so fun to animate. I got to do uh, a little bit of Ralph and Vanellope before he has to make the difficult decision to break the cart. Not that actual sequence. That was some really heroic work by more veteran animators. But there's a scene where they're kind of riding off, and she's like, hang on, I'll be right back. And she kind of goes off, and then King Candy approaches Ralph and kind of tells him, like, hey, you need to not let her race or it'll destroy the whole game. Right. Uh, So there's, like, a, a series of shots building up to that. When King Candy first appears, he's like, Ralph, hello, there you are. And he's like, you! So I got to do a little moment of, you know, him not being so happy to see King Candy right there. Uh, and then yeah. uh, I got to do a lot of Van- Vanellope in her car inside oh, of cool. the, the soda mountain when she's first learning how to drive and she's feeling great about herself. Uh, and she's kind of showing off a little bit. She kind of crashes. She goes off road and she drives up the mountain and does like a Super Mario Kart power slide move and crashes yeah. through a fence and kind of goes yeah. full throttle. Another uh, great sequence. It was really fun animating those cars too because I was telling my friends back home because I would talk to my friends back home a lot like, oh my God, I'm working on a Disney movie. This is so cool. And then when the movie was done and they got to see it, I got to talk a lot about, you know, when I was animating that scene of her driving the car, it was like muscle memory playing those Mario Kart games when I was a kid, especially Mario 64. <laughs> Even though nice. I'm on Maya, you know, in Maya animating it, you know, you know, one beat at a time, I would still manipulate the car and in my head it would like trigger the muscle memory of like power sliding in Mario Kart. <laughs> like I'm like recreating right. it based on what it felt like playing the uh, game. You totally nailed it cuz I I played a lot of Mario Kart also and I totally got that same feel from from <laughs> watching that movie. And the other thing I really like about it too is just the creativity with like the the cart building and how the carts are all like you know parts of candy and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, pe- like little peppermints for the wheels and stuff. It's just it's I mean, really fun. Of, yeah, the amount of creativity in that movie is is incredible, and I think you guys just really went above and beyond on that one. So my hats off to you. Well, I got to um, give credit to the amazing designer uh, Brittany Lee, who I think came up with a lot of those candy concoctions for the movie. I think she actually built uh, like a gingerbread house, like diorama with all sorts of candy and, and, oh, cool. and confections. And it was amazing. They documented it, obviously, because it would eventually rot because it was real food. But I think <laughs> oh, if you look at the Wreck-It Ralph, if you've got the the Blu-ray hard copy and oh, maybe the, I do. <laughs> yeah. The, the, there's not a lot of behind the scenes on it, but what they do have, they think they feature her candy, 
uh, mock-up that she made, which is oh, pretty awesome. cool. I did yeah, get to animate. I did get to animate on that sequence where they're building the cart, where he's like, "Ah, I'll go do it," you know. And she's operating the game, and he jumps up on the lever, and he's like, "You know, these go here, these go there." No, yeah. yes, and he gets like nailed by the flower sack, and then he gets ground up inside of the egg beater with <laughs> like all <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all very like kind of classic um, cartoon violence for for that <laughs> yeah. character. That was, that exactly. Was yeah, my, mild, fun cartoon violence. Yeah, no, I, I, that was actually kind of a delight because um, on this Disney movie, my first time at a big studio animating, but so much of it felt like stuff I was familiar with from my childhood. Like Wreck-It Ralph, articulating him, he's kind of like Donkey Kong, his proportions. So you're kind of, and even his job in the game to be the villain is like the destructor, the guy who wrecks things. So when he's like punching yeah. and breaking, you kind of, I imagine like Rampage and Donkey Kong in my head. Yep. And, yep. and he has to move in like an 8-bit kind of way. So it was fun to animate that. And then you're kind of mixing in elements of Mario Kart 64 and what it felt like to play that. And then Fix-It Felix is like Super Mario, so you're kind of animating with him in mind. Yeah. And then even like uh, Hero's Duty, like I was a huge StarCraft fan, so anytime I'm animating Calhoun, I'm thinking of like 1998-era Blizzard games. It was wow. just all nice. this stuff I loved from my childhood. And then King Candy, of course, is basically the Mad Hatter from the right. original Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> vocally yeah. and visually. Right. So animating him, you got to play with that aspect of character animation. So Wreck-It Ralph for a new animator was probably one of the most exciting, playful projects you could ever ask for. Because especially someone... I was 26 at the time, so it felt very fresh, like all these childhood memories and then putting them into this movie. Uh, I couldn't be more thankful to have started on a movie like that. And I love the movie. I think it's a great movie <laughs> on top of it. Yeah, it's it's quite something. It's really, really well done. If if, if someone hasn't seen Record Ralph, you guys go go check it out. It's, it's really a delight. Good. It's it's a it's a real kind of special movie in the pantheon of the Disney uh, uh, library. Um, so Speaking of I, which, I, you went oh, from that. Ahead. I mean, I was just going to list his credits real quick because right. this is like the first of so many projects. <laughs> right. Um, so Wreck-It Ralph is where you got to start. Um, I'm going to skip the shorts for now. Frozen, Big How Hero 6, Zootopia, Moana. Um, and then between each one is a short. So, yeah, this uh, it's like, uh, what, like eight projects? I something? was on uh, nine productions during my time at Disney. Unbelievable. Five wow. features and four short format projects. Wow. Wow. That must have been so much fun. It was a blast, man. I wouldn't trade that that period of my life for anything. It was such a treat. I enjoyed every project I worked on there. Um, so, I mean... And since... I often miss it. I still miss it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel you on that, for sure. Well, I just had one nerd question that I wanted to ask that, you know, might fit with the, our earlier conversation. When you're talking about keyframing and, um, you know, making these... Like, you have these models that you guys are animating or keyframing within your software. Uh, are, are these detailed um, models, or are they kind of like bare bones, and then once you have it like animated, then a team comes in and like puts the hair on, and puts the expressions on, and puts all the fine details on, or is it all built already you know, on the model? That's a great question. Uh, there's usually two or three different versions of the character that are mapped to the same rig, or armature, I guess you could say in stop motion terms. Uh, and... So they're all pointed at the same controller data, 
But then the simulation artists who follow the animators will swap out the proxy, you know, preview hair and and kind of chunky preview clothing on the character and and simulate clothing and hair on top of it. Uh, that data is in the rig. It's kind of hidden. The animators don't have access to it, but uh, it's all there. It's just you're kind of looking at a different version of the same right. puppet. So it's not so heavy though. to render, basically. Yeah, or heavy to preview in your scene, too. Uh, by the time... It, so I'm going to break this question down uh, also like a layer before, which is layout. So there's mm-hmm. like... Colin's job, yeah. Yeah, the layout, uh, uh, a lot of times, uh, you don't need quite such uh, level of detail. You know, in terms of uh, facial animation, you just kind of want to do the broad strokes. Uh, a lot of times, a layout artist mu- has to have all the characters loaded in a scene at once. Uh, and in certain scenes where there might be wow. crowds, um, that can get pretty hefty. Um, whereas an animator maybe can focus on the hero, you know, that's sort of the one in focus in a shot. Um, and so there might be a, a different rig swapped out. Uh, a layout artist might work with some with a rig that's a little bit lighter, uh, that has a little bit fewer controls, but by the time an animator gets it, there's really no, there's not much guesswork in the performance and anything that affects. Like you asked about, like facial con- expressions. Uh, once it leaves an animator's desk, like they're basically looking at a flat shaded version. So, so when it's rendered um, and lit, you know, details like skin texture um, will will come in. But in terms of uh, the expression that a character is making, an animator um, decides that. Um, wow. But then so, that, so that's part of their job before they, they pass it off, is to get the facial expressions down yep. a- within the movements and all the other things. Yeah. If you're a really conscientious animator, you'll look at the amazing work that the storyboard artist did and try and just borrow as much of that as you can. Because they've already put so much thought into it with the drawings and the conversations they have with the director that by the time it gets in front of the animator, you should start from that, you know? And even though we, we film live action reference of ourselves to create a believable sense of presence and physicality, I would often find myself filming reference, trying to get the, the, the tone and the, the pose that was already drawn in the storyboards those board artists are just insane. Yeah, really. they, they, they put so wow. much thought into it, and you're kind of doing a disservice to the film if you're not at least starting from that, I feel. Totally. Do, and do you're most, definitely going to get closer to what the director wants. Do most animators do that, do you think? Like, go with think, the storyboard artist? or I think they do. I would say the majority do, and then there's a minority that... Uh, admirably will take risks and then get shot down because they tried to deviate from the boards <laughs> and ah. the director already knows that they want the boards just animated. Right. Do I the feel boards. like because c- animation, the pipeline is, 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 is kind of amazing. It takes a lot of time to even figure out how this thing <laughs> gets out the other end, like how a single shot is touched by so many people, like literally a single shot will be touched by hundreds of people by the end if you include all the work on the assets, etc. Um, but every department and every artist who touches it adds something. And it's also very easy to throw stuff away. As layout artists, we're also looking at those boards as, uh, as sort of gospel. But I think that layout often 
will contribute in a similar way as a board artist um, to figuring out the feeling or tone of a shot, getting more specific about timing. There's definitely sometimes when an animator throws out work that's been done and uh, stuff that works suddenly breaks. Um, like iFix? Yeah, that's a really great. Uh, eyelines is something that layered artists put a lot of thought and attention to. Basically, where a character is looking across a cut, um, which is not actually the same thing as what Andrew br- brought up, which is also important, which is iFix. That's the iFix is, yeah. So eyeline is continuity of where the character is looking, so you have a comfortable cut based on the, the thing you're cutting from and cutting to connecting to each other. iFix is on the cut, where was the audience looking at the end of the previous shot and the beginning of the next shot? The easy wow. example uh, to talk about in this setting is the movie Mad Max Fury Road, where George Miller went out of his way to center his compositions very aggressively because there's so many cuts that happen so quickly, you don't have time to glance from one side of the frame to the other on the cut to see the subject. So as much as possible, if you're looking at something like you know Mad Max's hands around a chain and then you cut to Furiosa, you know, pulling the chain or whatever. It's you're looking exactly where you were in the previous shot. Right. To to, to see everything. And that's yeah, I fix is that and I line is are the characters on the shot reverse shot looking at each other properly. And both are not necessarily the priority of the animator. Um they and should could, be though. could get could get lost potentially. Mm-hmm. But you know, I feel like yeah, the that's one of the things that's so special about animation is that you're just you're building on top of what came before. Yeah, I so, learned a lot about um iFix and iLine actually from making one small step. Hmm. Let's use that as our transition. Right. Well, I want <laughs> I just want to to talk about it in this term though or in these terms like, you know, you're you're at Disney this is like arguably your your dream job. Um, like, how and why did you end up leaving? Uh, is it is it to make one small step, or is there another something before that? Like, to talk to us about about this big transition. Specifically, it was to make one small step. Uh, I wanted to stay at Disney, so I had kind of a selfish creative goal, which was I wanted to work on as many original films as Disney was going to make because you know every studio eventually feels the pressure to make sequels which is very understandable considering the immense financial pressures giant companies are are privy to especially if they want to give people raises and support all of the benefits of you know working at a big company the sequel thing makes all the sense in the world but I wanted to work on every original that was going to happen concurrently uh Um, And then I knew I didn't want to work in a big studio forever, and I also wanted to leave at my highest point. And it was hard to know when that was going to happen, but after Moana ended, it was actually a little sooner than I thought I would want to leave. I thought I was going to stay for a few more years, but I felt so good after Moana that I thought maybe now's the time to go do the thing I was itching to do, which is to do my own thing again and make short films the way I did at make before I came to Disney. Cause I really enjoyed that autonomy creatively. I was going to bring that up is that like, as long as I've known you, you've been making films of your own and even your student film was really incredible. Um, and, uh, we didn't really talk about brave Lo- locomotive, but that project was one that, that took, 
many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we've been talking about a lot about you know Andrew Chesworth, the animator, but this whole time you've also been thinking you know as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, as a director as well. Uh, yeah, I, I it's just an itch that I'm always scratching, and the Brave Locomotive is a piece that's technically not done. But we recorded a lot of music for it, me and uh, my friend Tom, and I did a lot of animation for it, and that was the the short film that I left make to work on before Disney hired me to kind of cultivate those skill sets. So it's this really special project that kind of lives on the internet in partial form, but also in my heart in complete form, because it's like this uh, love letter to 1940s musical Disney, the kind of... um, tall tales that they did like Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill and Johnny Appleseed, which I absolutely adore. And the films like make mine music and melody time, which were these kind of smaller hip versions of Fantasia with different contemporary art styles and and styles of music. Uh, just all the things I love from that era. I wanted to pour into the brave locomotive as well as my, love of experimenting with animation, combining computer animation and 2D animation in really strange and difficult ways. It 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 sounds like, in in a way, you leaving Make uh, back in 2010 was kind of a parallel moment to you leaving Disney, because in both cases, you left to work on a short film that you you would be directing. That's absolutely true, yeah. I left Make to focus on The Brave Locomotive, and I left Disney to focus on... Uh, what ultimately became one small step, uh, and wow. and to to be clear, uh, I had been asked to join Tycho, and that sort of accelerated my my kind of internal instinct of I'm going to eventually leave. I just don't know when. And then when this opportunity came along to join Tycho and shepherd in a leadership role this film that they wanted to make as their flagship project. Uh, it just felt like, well, maybe this is the answer to my instinct. My instinct is eventually I'm going to leave to do something. I just don't know what or when, but uh, maybe this is it. And it turned out to be a great decision. There were other kind of things poking at me. Uh, I had been asked by Sergio Pablos, who's this wonderful Disney animator, who is actually the co-creator of Despicable Me, he came up with the original concept and sold it to the studio that ended up making it. And they redesigned the characters and wow. changed the concept a little bit. But the the original idea of a supervillain looking after these these little girls was, was Sergio. And his studio, Sergio Pablo's Animation, is in Madrid, Spain. And I had been talking to Sergio a little bit because his team had reached out to me about potentially helping uh, lead a character unit on his movie Klaus, which is a 2D animated origin story for Santa Claus that is currently being produced by Netflix. And it's coming out next Christmas, a year from now. Uh, And that offer coincided with Tycho. And it was a very difficult decision to choose between the two because it was on my bucket list to work on a prestige 2D film like Klaus, which it very much is. And... But I also wanted to direct again because I had never been more creatively satisfied in my entire life than I had been just doing that one-minute film noir 
Palm Springs short. Wow. Disney wow. was satisfying in a different way because it was a childhood dream come true. And that is its own kind of miracle that very few people get to experience. And I, I don't take that for granted. I appreciated every second of it. But as an artist who thinks of something, designs it, and then makes it come to life, it's a different kind of satisfaction that it's almost not even really fair to compare the two because it's a different feeling you get from doing it. When you're animating on a film that's wildly successful and beloved and you got to contribute to it, it's this feeling that doesn't tickle the same part of your brain as you do when you make a film and you wrote it and designed it. And that's a different thing. And I think that's right. a feeling that I missed and wanted to come back to, uh, even if it was on a smaller scale in a more kind of quirky, experimental way. And um, I think that was ultimately the decision between Klaus and One Small Step was, I know the feeling of animating on a film that will be beloved and beautiful and very successful, but I miss the feeling of making something that I can yeah. kind of claim authorship over. It's and kind so, of the more risky choice, too, to go with Tycho in a way. Because very much so, yeah. They're a little bit more of an unknown quantity, and, I mean, you're getting to do something that's more in line with what you ultimately want to do. But, um, yeah, it's not the safe decision. No, it's know? not. It's not. And it wasn't an easy decision. It was a bit of an emotional decision. Uh, emotional in that I, I kind of grieved leaving Disney. Like I remember feeling very sad about it, even though it was to do something I felt like long-term I would feel a lot of satisfaction over. Uh, and I do, I mean, the film is done and I'm incredibly proud of it. And it's weird how much finishing it aligned with the goal, which was to leave and make something and hopefully be proud of it. And, and I did, and I am, and it's a little weird that it's already done. And the project that I left which was Wreck-It Ralph 2, to to make this project is coming out like in a few weeks. And our film's right. been done for, you know, almost a year. So it's a very strange feeling that we went and now the film is done and been done. And, mm-hmm. and now we're kind of, we're in this in-between phase as a studio where we've got this short and it's performing at film festivals. And it's um, its life is kind of at the end of its festival run and kind of retiring into its online presence but it's gotten our studio a lot of work and because we're a startup company we're doing commercials and side projects and it feels kind of similar to what I did at Make but I'm in a slightly different role I'm kind of on the peripheral of that rather than in the thick of it like I was at Make at Make I was very much in production and at Tyco I'm in development so I'm mostly in strategy and story meetings for projects that we incubate on our own but I'm also kind of a quality control consultant on the production side of things too. And what are what are Tyco's goals? Tyco's goals uh, as a company, the mission statement is to bridge Eastern and Western sensibilities into the stories we tell. It's a pretty global market we're in now. No one can deny the influence of China, whether you're in video games, movies, animation, uh, real estate. I mean, the presence of. <laughs> the other superpower country in the world is undeniable and the the economies are so intertwined and the media of the two countries is so intertwined now. Yeah. So the goal of the company is to bridge that gap in a comfortable way. Uh, and it's, it's a challenge obviously, cause I don't speak Mandarin, but our CEO does. 
and our, our team over there, some of them speak a little bit of English, some of them don't. Um, but on our side of the ocean, only two people speak Mandarin. Wow. So we have a translator. Wow. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead, Colin. <laughs> well, just in terms of uh, the, the format and formats that you're... Oh, I see. The, like the products that we're, we'll make. Right. Uh, well, I want to actually keep making more shorts. Yeah. I, I, I love... I know most people like leave to go make feature films, and as much as I'd love to do that, it's certainly on my bucket list. I actually really like making shorts. Shorts are amazing. And yeah. I hope that the business model for making shorts remains viable because there's so much desire for content. Uh, and with shorts, you can be experimental in a way that even with a 20 or $30 million budget, which is a fraction of what Disney spends on their movies you still can't really be experimental the way you can on like a one to five million dollar short. It's a different animal. I am very perplexed by this claim you just made that shorts are viable. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, in China, they're more viable now because Tencent and other big companies have platforms that are just like sanctioned YouTube. Like we want content that's bite size and we'll get eyeballs on it so so one small step has made its money back its production budget that i don't have the answer to i'm not sure i know it went viral in china we're probably approaching 30 million views there wow uh we're at about i don't know we're hovering somewhere between three and five million cumulative in the u.s oh wow uh and in china it's many many times that and growing and I know our exposure there is much more significant than it is here. Uh, yeah, I think for me, the older I... When I was younger, for example, like when I saw The Incredibles, my dream was I want to make an animated feature. And it was just that. And there wasn't really much of a wider net outside of it. And then working at Make and getting to do so many things, shorts, uh, commercials, special projects, opened up my mind to how exciting that can be and then animating a disney and knowing what it actually means to make an animated feature from the inside out you know you're kind of inside the machine under the hood you see how the sausage actually gets made and you think okay if i was ever to be in charge of this machine i would want to do very well by it because there's a lot of people looking at you that want to be provided for and yeah. you and you look at the content in a different way because you're res- it's like being a parent you're responsible for the well-being of the team so you don't want to be irresponsible with those resources and you might be a little more careful about the ideas that you try and put in front of people to to ask for permission to use those resources so that's there's a certain pressure there that you want to respect uh, but whereas with a short, if there's a smaller amount of money on the line and the format is a little bit more playful, I, I, as an artist, that's exciting. And I think with one small step, we could play with the style, we could play with the tone, we could go as heavy as we wanted to during moments of impact and and as uh, visually abstract as we wanted to for some of the more stylized shots. Uh, and no one's going to say, no, don't do that. It's not commercially viable because... It's just we're making it, and now it's a thing that exists. And that's a really wonderful place to be if you ever have the opportunity to be there. But couldn't uh, being at a smaller studio like Tyco, couldn't that allow you to do the same thing with a feature, to make something that's more free and not so much burdened by, you know, know, the big machine like Disney? I I tend to believe that that's – and and I hope 
animation fans don't hold this against me, but I tend to feel like that that's more viable in live action than it is in animation. Mm. You can in live action you can make a fantastic horror film or indie drama for just a couple million dollars and it could get you a really great opportunity you know or or a couple hundred thousand dollars these days yeah i I think (laughs) in animation it's animation is inherently expensive because of the input output time ratio and to do a feature film in animation you just need a lot of heads a lot of warm bodies as they say (laughs) to get it done and especially at a quality that's going to engage an audience animation's a very uh, elaborate art form that requires understanding of a lot of things and a lot of decisions have to go right just like in film but yeah in live action you can point a, a camera in the woods in the middle of the day and you've got the lighting and the set taken care of and you have one right. you know character in whatever <laughs> wardrobe and it's just it's pretty cheap but to to make those same images happen in an animated film you need to you need to design every frame and there's no real shortcuts in, in comparison one of my favorite short films of the year is actually a very unusual length it's uh trevor jimenez's film called weekends, weekends yeah and it's we were just hanging out at the Savannah Film Festival uh, a few days ago. I love Trevor. I love his film. I love everything he stands for creatively. Amazing guy. His uh, his film so personal and so accessible. He's a huge David Lynch fan, as am I, and that influence doesn't overwhelm the content. It's still a very discernible, coherent story. But he is able to invite a lot of dream logic into it that, in that Pixar way, is absolutely in the service of the goal of the film, which I find very admirable. He's taking the elements of dream logic that he likes, but you can see the Pixar discipline in how he crafts a scene or puts together a story. Mm. Uh, I was touring with with Trevor uh, at the animation show of shows at a few different venues. But it, yeah, it's just a a real treat to get to spend time with people who who make really personal films like that and still use animation to do it in a way that doesn't feel inexpensive or kind of hackneyed. It still feels considered and, and artfully done, but not in a way that's overbearing. Right. right. So I have one last question, and you know I know you talked about the mission statement of Tyco, and I know you talked about what you're looking to do. Uh, but Tyco as a company, like what are they trying to do, or are you trying to do with Tyco? Are, are they looking to be like going into the feature market at all, or is it is it aligned with you, and they want to do shorts and, and commercial projects and just grow as a company that way? Like, is there a certain idea within the team? Yeah, there is. I mean, the goal of the company is to do international feature films, uh, and, uh, serialized content. And even it's interesting talking about the dream of doing a feature versus a short versus a, a TV show, because in live action, especially serialized content and features are sort of merging a little bit. I mean, you'll have a franchise like Harry Potter, that's basically a really expensive miniseries. And then you'll have, a show like Breaking Bad that can inspire a feature film, which they recently announced. And it's it doesn't feel the same as it did in the old days where you're like, oh, they're going to do a TV movie. I bet it's not going to be good. 
when right. they when they announced the Breaking Bad movie, I was thinking, I bet that's going to be better than most movies, right? Which I is mean, just everyone's a sign of, like so excited. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a time. It we live in a time where that doesn't sound like a terrible idea. It sounds like oh, with those people, I'm sure that'll be great. I've liked everything oh, yeah. they've done, and that, that seems to be true for the way a lot of movies and TV are going now where the, the the talent that's going into TV I feel like is the talent that used to be going into prestige cinema like what you could cynically call an Oscar bait movie or an indie drama I feel like a lot of that talent is going into TV because that's where you can do it and that's where the adult audience is that wants to come home from work wind down, watch something intelligent and stimulating and not feel like they're being obliterated with uh, <laughs> commercial noise, essentially. Right, right. Uh, and so it's a different way of consuming it, but if you want that feeling that you used to get from, I don't know, going to see a movie like Little Miss Sunshine in theaters, now you get it watching prestige uh, streaming content well but i wouldn't say that you you can't still go to the theater and find a movie that has that same kind of um, magical feeling absolutely but i'm just saying that i just feel like now there's also that at home you know i I agreed yeah like you can watch a madman or you know whatever one of million of shows and it's like that same level of like amazing yeah totally agree yeah you're right it's not like it's uh either or but I feel like um, there's definitely some economic pressures on uh, how daring you can be with your storytelling in a in a more I guess uh, Thunderdome theatrical content uh, context. Well, yeah, especially because now they're not really making movies for you know under ten million dollars as much. You know, like everything's super big budget. You know, yeah, yeah. And so the the risk ability, their ability to take risks doesn't seem to be there unless you're doing independent film. And then, and then you can take all the risks you want, but then, you know, who knows how many people are going to see it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. It's funny, I, I all the time, for my friends who aren't in the industry, are always like, you know what, Ulrich, you know what you should do? You should make a Netflix show. Oh, you know what you should do? <laughs> you should make an Amazon Prime show. Yeah, that's that's it, It's super, it's like, all you do is just say it, and then it happens, yeah. Right. But I don't Good think idea. they understand that that's, like, just as hard, if not harder, than <laughs> making a feature, you know? It is. Um, well, yeah, breaking story on a whole season, that's a new thing, because... Yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about the diversity of development at Tyco, uh, not in a specific project specific way, but in a just what the the challenges are kind of way. So right now we're doing, like I said, some production work, bread and butter work to kind of put put food on the table for the team. But on the development side, there's a couple shorts that we're developing for very specific. Um, paid for venues uh, mostly in china uh but they're gonna have an international release uh so that people here can enjoy them because we're not making them for the china audience it's just the venue is Uh. a little more specific to china in terms of like somebody will pay for it and put it on a platform even though it's just a short uh which is great that's a very unusual thing and i could see it catching on here as more mobile i hope it does that's crazy that's awesome uh and then on the feature side of things In China, uh, there's a lot of interest in trying to get a feature made in the $25 to $35 million range, which is about what the Netflix movie Next Gen was made for. Uh, That kind of scale animated Mm. movie, where in the Western and maybe like 
European, North American markets, it gets a streaming release. And then in China, it gets a, th- a theatrical release. And then if it's a really great project, maybe a limited theatrical release in the States. That would be like a hypothetical for the type of movie Tycho could make. You'll see, see more of that, you know, as Netflix makes, you know, 30 to $40 million budget animated movies. They'll go straight to streaming for the most part, but they probably will try and give them a limited theatrical run. Not that we're making a movie for Netflix specifically, but the type of movie we would make for any streaming platform, we would probably try and treat it in a similar way if it gets the kind of funding from China that we're currently looking at. Wow, that's exciting. And then uh, as a studio, we're trying to still keep a kind of brand, the the international uh, perspective where we're representing characters that are not typically represented. I mean, in one small step, she's Chinese-American, but it's not really... It's not critical to the story in terms of what the actual plight of the character is. Right. It just happens to be her background and it defines her her character in a in a more just I understand who she is because that's her background. With other projects we're developing, there was one that I felt very strongly should be Indian American based on uh, one of the people who helped us develop it. And mm, then there was cool. another project who, um, another project where we thought the characters would be Chinese-American, but then there would be family from China, and somehow those two things would connect. This is all just talking right. about projects in a non-specific no, way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fantastic that you guys are thinking about diverse casting for your, for your movies, because I think that's you know, is a really important thing to be aware of as filmmakers right now. And I feel like, you know, if we have the ability to, you know, make some interesting choices in casting and, you know, even with the type of stories we're telling, I think we should be doing that. We should be. And I mean, and, and I don't want to ever put myself in a position where I feel like I'm the one to speak on their behalf. I'm more interested in... I'm more interested in supporting those voices. Uh, just, just for a follow-up question, really quick. Um, you know, this like twenty-five to thirty million dollar project that may or may not happen. Is that something that's on the table for you to direct, or does it kind of just depend on the story of that particular project? It, it depends on the project. Uh, I'm more interested in helping other people tell their stories as it relates to Tycho, specifically the mission statement of bridging the cultures and and kind of representing more identities in the stories we tell. Uh, I think it's important for those voices to be authentic. And I I have a lot of experience in production and in how to craft a project. And I hope I can use that to help other people tell their stories through our company. And there's a handful of stories I pitched there's one that's a science fiction thing I came up with, and there's one that's sort of a high-concept genre piece, uh, kind of a detective-y film noir thing, kind of oh, like the cool. short film. And that one I feel really personal to, because part of it is based on my love of genre film, and part of it is inspired by how I met my girlfriend with the love story component. And those two things mixed together, like my relationship and my love of film, I feel like that's my story to tell. And uh, so, if that one happens, then that would be something that you would direct. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, without a doubt. And then there's other stories that are developed by team members at the studio, or you know, sometimes people will bring stories to our studio. 
uh, like, hey, what do you think of this book or this intellectual property? What would you guys do with that? And I'll kind of help shape it. Uh, and there's not one specific project that we're kind of about to make in the 25 to $35 million range. We're kind of developing a bunch of stuff, and that just happens to be the business model that we pointed at because it makes sense for our capacity. Nice. Awesome. Well, Colin, do you have any last final questions for Andrew? Will you hire me? Uh, <laughs> yes. The answer is yeah. I actually, I'm going to say it right here. I've always wanted to make something with Colin at a larger scale. Uh, I contributed to his Kickstarter for The Secret Number, so I got that that vaunted executive producer there you go. Yeah, I saw that EP credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I really believe in Colin. I love Colin's way of approaching the creative process and i just like being around him and collaborating with them and i yeah, feel we like haven't that, done it enough i feel like yeah i mean i'm just as i as i get older and i make more things i'm just more interested in new collaborations that's what makes working exciting to me you have to have something to look forward to like oh i'm gonna learn something new on this or i'm gonna be exposed to a new point of view on this and that makes you more excited to kind of use your powers as a creative person because now you're you're doing something new and hopefully useful in a different way with them instead of just kind of doing what you did before but slightly different right wow yeah i mean it's i'm just sitting here like yeah i I guess i haven't contributed much because i'm just listening and absorbing and i really i'm so excited by everything you've done you know leading up to this point but but your future is so bright you know with you as an individual filmmaker you know creator developer (laughs) but also taiko um it's like uh just been a privilege to kind of be on the sidelines but watching your trajectory rise um and to see one small step out you know get out into the world and um you know it's it's a oscar qualifying short and i i I think it's one one of the best uh, this year, so you know, fingers crossed. But you know, you're, it's a, it's a really amazing um, path. <laughs> That's really kind of you, man. I appreciate the support. Of course, of course. Uh, and I'm going to go through your website and watch all the stuff that's on there. Um, I just watched you know a little bit while we were talking, and I was blown away by the Palm Springs piece. And uh, <clears throat> I watched a little bit of the Brave Locomotive, which is really charming. And you know, um, yeah, I can't wait to dig and in. Literally, and really... just you know, just. Just hitting play on his animation reel is—it's a joy just to watch all of the shots yeah. and all the performances that he's contributed to that he's architected for all these uh, incredible movies that you've, you're familiar with already. Yeah. Especially if you're like an animation fan, like yeah. you know, you see see all the influences from the early Disney work. You know, I'm not the biggest animation buff in the world, but I certainly watch a lot of cartoons, so I I'm really into it a lot. Um, the other thing I wanted to shout out was I was digging through your webpage and I, I stumbled upon your illustrations. And I started to notice that you have some illustrations that are inspired by pop culture and uh, other movies. And one of my favorite movies, Ex Machina, you have a really beautiful piece that you did, um, you know, based on that film. And you have a Star Wars one, and you have that, a Game that of Thrones one. That May the Fourth one. one went ultra viral a few few May Fourths ago. Oh, oh really? the, the the Pixar Wars thing. That was before oh, Disney oh, right. bought Pixar. Oh, we all gosh, thought it was yeah. going to happen. <laughs> wow. Or no, no, it was before Disney bought Lucasfilm, I mean. Right, right. But we thought it was going to happen, and it did. So which one is that one in specific? 
Um, oh, there's like an X-wing with a, a face on it <laughs> that looks uh, sort of yeah. like Cars inspired. Like, it's sort of like uh, yeah, like the Cars franchise. Oh, I gotta, I gotta find it. My Anyways, f- we'll have a link on the on the website. That's what it was, right? Right. It. As a caricaturist, you're like an inspector. Like, what makes this situation sp- specific, or how do I? How do I get around this problem of capturing this person's likeness in this way? There's like a problem-solving mm-hmm. analytical aspect to it. Uh, I really enjoy doing caricatures. It's one of the most leisurely artistic practices I indulge in. I, I can sit down and I just enjoy doing it, but it also is a tremendous mental exercise. <laughs> yeah, well, and they're also amazing. just a, a joy to to look at yeah. uh, from you know my perspective as just the consumer. They're, Usually, they're amazing. Oh, well, thank you. That, that's very kind of you. Usually, my goal is to make myself laugh. Though I think the hardest I ever laughed at one that I was drawing while i was making it was the the kylo ren and uh ray <laughs> team up image i don't know why it's not even a particularly yeah, funny that's image. a great one <laughs> something about it made me laugh <laughs> i don't know why it's just I, I i think it's their faces you know it's um yeah especially kylo ren's face he kind of looks like uh like a disney butler or something <laughs> like one of those old animation pieces you know uh He's swollen. Yeah. He's always got to be crying. There's always got to be a tear running down a his tear. face. <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah, Ray kind of looks like, you know, a Disney princess in a way. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> really. But like a total badass one who's about to slice <laughs> some people up. <laughs> she's such a great character. I enjoy her oh. performance so much. Yeah, she's me got too. great. She's got a great new um, presence in the franchise that just gives it a jolt, like a much needed mm. yeah. defibrillation. It- <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I was uh, at the park with my nephew a few years ago and um watching a little girl run around and be Ray um hmm. and like chasing around the guys and being the hero of of their game. I was like that's that that's brings awesome. joy to my heart. It's yeah. super super wonderful. She's super cool. She's such an inspiring character and those two characters specifically, um Kylo Ren and 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 Ray are they're both extremely charismatic at their at their oh, yeah. uh Mm. persona in the film yeah absolutely totally. so this went on much longer than expected we might even have to break this into two, up into two episodes but this has been <laughs> such a fantastic conversation there was one um, little there was one little sound but i wanted to add just to talk about one small sure. step because when, when you were talking about the work and seeing influences in it i feel like i really need to shout out my co-director bobby pontius and the art style he created for one small step because he was really inspired by that concept of the moving illustration, uh, where you look at the image and it looks like it could be a painting and then it starts to move. And ever since we had that conversation in the beginning, that was the goal. Just to, how do we make it feel like a, an illustration that just starts moving? Uh, and there was a timeless quality to that because if it looks like an art style that just exists on its own terms, it's software agnostic, like it doesn't matter if you did it in Maya or Photoshop or After Effects, because the look is the look that it's setting out to be. Those conversations were just a delight to have with the crew. So yeah, really proud of the whole team that made that short and everyone at Tyco is doing incredible work and I can't wait. I mean, even though I'm at the company as a bystander, I can't wait to see what they do. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's exciting to watch your colleagues. <laughs> Do their best work. I mean, it looks amazing. It's got such a unique 
um, visual style. I don't know how it was executed. I've seen little snippets of behind the scenes stuff, but it's gorgeous. Uh, in in sort of a, a Paper Man esque way, a lot, I think a lot of people are familiar with how different Paper Man looked the Disney um, short a few years back. Yeah. And this is, uh, I think, similarly pushing the envelope of what what. Uh, animation can look like. I can't wait to watch uh, One Small Step after we're yeah. done with this podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I know we, we get this question a lot from, from people who follow our studio, and the goal very much is to bring that sensibility into the work that we do. We we have a few commercial projects that are in the the more traditional CGI rendered sort of vein, uh, and it's a good discipline to have in your tool belt. But as far as the Tyco brand is concerned, we we want to have that alternative look hmm. to our cool. identity. I think it That's won't be really the cool. same every time. There's going to be new looks, new techniques, but... We want the alternative look to be a signature of our studio. I think that's really as smart. As much as possible. Yeah. Well, and if you, you've got the art direction talent to back back that up. Um, so that's really cool. Yeah. It's awesome. So. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so where can people find your work? Get, list us your website, your Twitter, your Facebook, all the places where people can find you. Uh, yeah, you can search my name, Andrew Chesworth. AndrewChesworth.com will take you to my kind of hub website. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Andrew underscore Chesworth. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at A underscore Chesworth. Um, but I actually got hired to teach at CalArts because of my Twitter account. So use your words carefully, kids. <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, when I was brought in, um, the head of the character animation department said, I really like how you speak about the craft on Twitter, on social media, it's like really informative and uh, you're very passionate about it and you seem to know a lot. So I wanted to bring mm. you in and talk. And You're the right I, guy for the job, I have to say, though. Yeah, you're, yeah. There, there is something to be said about that. When you're on social media, you're kind of always on. You're always kind of selling yourself. And not that people shouldn't be casual and share what they feel, but as someone who's directly benefited from curating what I'm passionate about, um, mm. I can attest to that, but I do still share onion articles and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 this probably my most shared non animation related thing is probably the onion. <laughs> That's funny. Nice. Um, all right, Colin, any last words before we wrap this thing up? No, sir. No last words. Well, I mean, gosh, again, what an epic conversation. Um, I think people who love animation, who are interested in animation, who are maybe starting to work in animation, and this is going to be such an amazing episode for, for all those people. And then I think just anyone who finds, uh, you know, this stuff interesting. I mean, I, I know that, oh, man, it was amazing. So thank you so much <laughs> for being on the show, Andrew. Just a pleasure. Totally. Um and yeah thanks for everyone for listening if uh, you uh, you want you can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode including all of Andrew's work uh, his website um, you know some of the movies that we mentioned some of the commercial spots that uh, we discussed um, some of Tyson's work hopefully we can we can track that down cool I think that'd be great to share um, if you want you can get in contact with us you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or 
you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcast. And please, if you dig the show, tell a friend, spread the word. Um, you can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, but I think, honestly, just telling somebody about the show is, uh, is a really good thing, too. Um, and Colin, thank you so much for a great episode. And Andrew, again, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much, Ulrich. And thank you, Colin. Thank you both for your hospitality. This was a real pleasure. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Talk to you guys next week. Talk Thanks, to you soon. Guys.